0: great passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Let me begin by saying many of you are probably pretty familiar with uh, driving up the coast of California on Highway 1. Maybe you leave here in Irvine and head up uh, through Santa Barbara and Ventura and uh, Pismo Beach and you get to San Luis Obispo and then you take a left and you go to Morro Bay where the rock is. And uh, then you go through Morro Bay and Cayucos and Cambria and up past Hearst Castle and and Big Sur and so forth. And then you cross the Bixby Bridge and uh, you make your way to Carmel-by-the-Sea and Monterey and points beyond that. That's an absolute beautiful drive. Uh, Let me pause in my story here and uh, give you a little bit of an, an- anecdotal story here. It, it'll help you understand the multifaceted nature of my wife. And, <laughs> and if you're asking whether or not I got permission to say this, the answer is no. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Um, you know, when, when Suzanne finished off her PhD and, uh, passed all of our exams and so forth, we went out and bought a car. And uh, we went over to City of Orange or something like that, and we found a fellow that was selling uh, a 1999, and this was a long time ago, maybe two or three years old at that time, uh, BMW Z3, charcoal gray, just a beautiful, pristine car, not too many miles on it. Price was right. And so we bought it, and she drove that car for 17, 18 years, perhaps. But uh, one of the early trips that we took in that car was up Highway 1 and crossed the Bixby Bridge, and we started taking a lot of curves that you need to take with a great deal of care if you're going to make it and drive safely on that road. And she was driving, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, and, um, Along came a fellow who just busted past her in a Mini Cooper. And she took that seriously. Game on, and it was a two-person race. And I mean, I was sitting there with white knuckles going like this and this, and she was racing this guy up this hill, and she was determined to overtake him. And she lost the race. And she had to take several months of therapy just to kind of recover (laughs) from that a little bit. Uh, But anyway, you know, uh, you know, I I think the reason she became a psychologist is because she couldn't quite qualify for the Indy 500. But nevertheless, anyway. Going back to the story a little bit, what do you do when you you get up through Highway 1, cross Bixby Bridge, and you're making all of those turns in the road, and you say, you know, man, I'm just weary of all of these bends in the road. I prefer to think of the road as being straight. Well, obviously, that uh, doesn't work. If you want to go straight, then you have to get on that ribbon of road that goes up through Central California that we know as Interstate 5. (laughs) Uh, You get there in a hurry, but uh, there can't be a more boring drive in all of the United States. But if you choose the coastal road, you have to put up with the curves. In other words, you don't make demands on the road. The road makes makes demands on you. And the same principle applies in the school, in the marketplace, um, and in our relationships. We have to submit to the reality of what things are in order to survive. Now, in light of that, isn't it amazing in our own communities here in Irvine, for instance, and Irvine's a wonderful place to live. It's got wonderful people in it. But let's say you've got a neighbor or someone who says, you know, I prefer to think of God as a loving God. And all good men and women and boys and girls and young people, all of them who are doing well, being honest, uh, not cheating in school, not cheating at work, um, friendly, trustworthy, just salt of the earth people, they're all going to make it to heaven because they're so good, even though they may not believe in Jesus. You know, they'll say something like that, and perhaps you've heard it yourself, uh, even though God really doesn't present himself that way in the book that he authored. And it's ironic that uh, you and I and so many other people are willing to accept reality and all other aspects of life, but sometimes we have a tendency to just redesign God a little bit, uh, and, you know, and you know, to our own desires and not let him be who he really is. See, how can a God, if, if, you know, if logic says that we are greater than that which we create and if we remake God, how can a God that we remake, that we recreate be of any use to us? You know, if we feel guilty, I'm going to step down a little bit. If we feel guilty, how can a God that we create tell us we're not guilty? If we feel like we don't matter, if that, you know, we just don't, nobody, you know, we just feel down, how can a God that we create tell us that we do matter? See, only a real God can dismiss our guilt by forgiving our sins And demonstrate our value by dying for our sins. So when we reconstruct God, what we end up doing is stripping him of his power. And that means he's no use to us. But if we are interested in letting God be who he is in terms of how one is saved, how one is redeemed then the passage we're going to look at today that was read just a few minutes ago is instrumental. It uh, might be the most comprehensive passage in all of the Bible when it comes to about talking to the, about the new birth. Now, let's begin with a little definition when we talk about the new birth. The new birth is simply the giving of spiritual life, to men, women, children, young people who, are norm- who would come be otherwise spiritually dead in their own sin. Now, the outcropping of the new birth is that it takes men and women and young people out of the domain of Satan and into part of God's kingdom. Now, there are four facts, and I've given them to you in the bulletin outline about the new birth that surface in our text, and I'll just kind of march through each one of them. First, you you need it. You need to be born again. You need the new birth. Uh, Let me read a couple of scriptures. Uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And the unless here is categorical. Unless there's oxygen, there's no fire. Unless there's rain, there's no crops. Unless you're born again, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus happened to be a Pharisee. Now, in our culture, the term Pharisee always is going to have a negative connotation. It's a derogatory word. It smacks of hypocrisy, a lack of authenticity. But when you go back into the first century, not all Pharisees were legalistic hypocrites. The vast majority of Pharisees, then we read about them, sometimes in the scriptures they're printed Presented in a very negative way, but the vast majority were were very good people. They were simply very serious about keeping the law of God, and uh, Nicodemus would be among that group. He is a good guy. In verse ten, Nicodemus it says was called to be a teacher in Israel, and he was a Jew. But he had a Greek name, which suggests he was not only familiar with Judaism, and he certainly was, but he was also familiar uh, with Greek Hellenistic culture and Greek philosophy. So Nicodemus was a politician as well. He was a ruler over the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body. He He conducted trials. He investigated heresies, he wrote laws, he interfaced with the Roman authorities, and most likely the reason he came to Jesus by night is simply that was probably the only time that the two of them together could have an uninterrupted conversation. So when we talk about Nicodemus, he combines moral rectitude with intellectual depth and an open heart. He had wealth wisdom, status, he was civic-minded, and this guy, earthly speaking, had it all together. Now, the problem is that Mr. Had-It-All-Together needed to be born again just like everyone else. Uh, His religion itself had not helped him personally know God. His education had not solved the problem of sin in his own life, and his political clout was not going to get him into the kingdom of God. Now, I'd hazard a guess today that most of us in this room, including especially, perhaps, yours truly here, uh, do not behave as scrupulously as Nicodemus happened to be at that particular time. This guy was a good guy. He was the kind of guy we could trust, And so the point is, point one, everybody needs the new birth. Whether you're good or bad, we're all in the same boat. Everybody's in the same boat. We need to be born again. Second, uh, you can't earn it. Uh, You know, one of the things we talk about a fair amount here at Harvest is getting close to God, communing with God. Yeah, doing personal Bible study, reading the Bible, trying to figure out what God might be saying here and how it applies to you, and bouncing it off one another in the small groups that you have, and and so forth. And all all of those are great things. And what we do when we do that is we create relational accountability as we grow in our intimacy with Christ. And it enables us to move a lot further in the Lord as a group rather than single individuals. And that's very significant uh, as far as our own growth does. But the point is, unless we understand something about the unbelievable grace of God, the more we study God, the more we know God, the closer we get to God, uh, and see his beauty and his perfection, uh, we feel pretty unworthy of even belonging to a God like that. Uh, do you remember the curve in uh, higher academia? Do you, do you remember the, the curve? I, I thought it was just a wonderful invention. <laughs> uh, you know, if the, it goes something like this. If the top grade in a class, say in college... Uh, is 80%, and that person uh, gets an A. And those of us who scored 70 or 60 or 50 get Bs and Cs rather than Ds and Fs. Now, this relativistic standard of excellence that I so loved (laughs) worked pretty well until you encountered the curve buster. (laughs) You know, and it seemed like, it seemed like in every class, there's always a girl or two that <laughs> wrecked life for everybody else, you know, and it's just really, really difficult. Now, her excellence, let's say, took away our excuses for a lack of excellence. Now, if we apply this to God, God would be sort of like the ultimate curve buster. Now what God does is he sets the standard so high that none of us are able to pass. And so what he does is he annihilates the spiritual performance track by saying, listen, all you have to do if you want to earn your spiritual life is this, just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor just as much just as often as you love yourself now of course we don't do that and therefore we're all going to be guilty and that's why what we happen to do oftentimes in our own culture is lower the standard of god in such a way that god's going to grade on the curve hey I'm better off, I do. I'm more kind and loving than most of the people I know, therefore I'm in. No problem whatsoever. And that was Nicodemus' problem. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. Now that was pretty much the view of the culture of that particular day. Jesus, like the teachers of the other religions, you know, just like leaders of the other religions, came to be predominantly a teacher. He came to give us wisdom on how to be better people. Uh, he offered insight that will make us more loving and help us make the world a little bit better place. And though, therefore, if we do that kind of a thing, then we're in. If, if we just behave and, and follow the teachings of Jesus, we're in. Uh, the problem is, however... You, you still need to be born again. It can't be earned. It happens to be a gift. It's an infusion of spiritual life into the, into the soul of men and women and young people whereby Christ takes up residence and becomes king. Now, the definitive statement in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, because God says, I don't want anybody to boast that they earned it. It was all of grace. And the reason he doesn't want us to boast is because we glorify ourselves rather than glorifying him who gave it to us. So, first, we need the new birth. Secondly, we can't earn it. Third, we have to receive it. Uh, Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Kind of a strange picture. It comes out of the book of Numbers deep into the Old Testament, chapter 21. And the Israelites at that particular time, you know how they crossed the Red Sea miraculously and escaped the Egyptians and God drowned the Egyptian chariots in the Red Sea and they made their way into uh, the Sinai Peninsula so forth. And there was a generation of people that said, we can't go into the promised land. Uh, There are giants there. We'll be slaughtered. And so God waited for that generation to die out. And so they were wandering all over that peninsula for 40 years, and then ultimately they came to it uh, under General Joshua, who was ultimately going to lead them in it. But you know, backing up a little bit, while they were in the wilderness, they began to murmur against God. They began to murmur against Moses. They didn't like the leader that he was. They were just just sour people during that time. And the thing they did, they didn't even have to work for their food. Remember, out in the wilderness, there's no place to grow crops, and the entire Jewish nation was out there. And so God provided them uh, food. He provided manna. And manna came every single day. All they had to do in the morning is get up and walk out the, the flap of their tents, and Amazon had already brought that day's supply to their tent, you know. And it was healthy food. It was good food. You could fix it in a number of different ways. You could have manna burgers and manna pasta and manna on a stick and manna cotti and manna cream pie. All kinds of stuff, you know. And it was just, you know, they, they you were know, just sour on everything. And... Uh, because of their complaining, what God did is he sent snakes into the camp, and some of the Israelites were bitten, and they even died. Now, why would God do that kind of a thing? Well, it was simply a reminder to show them that the venom in their souls and how dire their spiritual situation was, and as they lay there dying, they were racked with convulsions, they cried out to God. And then God told Moses, listen, I want you to put a serpent on the end of the stick, and I want you to stick it right in the middle of the camp. And anybody who's sick, anybody who's been bitten, all they had to do was look at that serpent, and they would be instantly healed. And it was cured. And Jesus applies this Old Testament experience to himself. And he says this, just as the Israelites had to look at the serpent on the pole So you and I must look at Jesus on the cross. It's a fitting analogy for a couple of reasons. First, the people who looked at the brass serpent knew that they were dying because of the physical poison in their bodies. And when we look at our Lord Christ there on the cross, we know that we're dying because of the spiritual poison in our souls. Now, second, The Israelites didn't have to crawl to the serpent and touch it. All they had to do was look at it. And and the venom and the fever would depart from their life. Just like to experience the new birth, we simply must look at our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice there on the cross at Calvary. And we experience the new birth simply by looking to Jesus Christ. So, Point four, Uh, you're changed by the new birth. Verse eight, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so everyone who is born of the Spirit. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit is like the wind. Uh, You... Can't see the wind, but you can hear the wind and you can see the effects of the wind. If I said uh, the wind was blowing in this room right now, you would retort, no, it's not blowing. I might say, Well, how do you know that the wind isn't blowing? You can't see it, it's invisible. You would say, Well, yeah, but I could see the effects of the wind. The bulletins would be flying around and the remaining hair on your head would be out of place and so forth. And so you know you you don't see the wind but you feel the effects of the wind. And so we ask the question this. How is the all-powerful, magnificent, glorious God how can he come into your life and in my life and not mess up one single hair on our head? That's just not the way that he behaves. That's not what he does. Uh, it's like we ask the question, well, how can that happen? You see, there needs to simply be evidence in your life and in my life that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence, and he, in fact, is the main controller of our lives. He is the one who is nurturing us toward Jesus Christ and continuing to build in us uh, greater and greater godliness so that we not only enjoy this life more, but we're preparing for the next one a little bit more as well. So we always have to ask, you know, God, do, you, do, do I really resent you for working in my life and putting me through such hard times? Uh, you, know, why, you know, am I really becoming more loving rather than more crotchety? You know, do I resent the authority of God or do I delight in His commands, knowing that they're going to bring more graciousness to my life if I follow them? You know, I've mentioned to you before that I went to high school and part of college in the sexy 60s, you know, and that was a weird, weird time in the life. (laughs) Many of you weren't even born then. You don't even know anything about it. But nevertheless, you know, those were the days when You know, we burned our draft cards and had love-ins and smoked pot and joined the Peace Corps and went to Woodstock, and we hated the establishment and all these kinds of weird things that were going on in our generation. And the greatest generation, which was the name of the the generation before the boomers, they didn't know what to do with us. They said, what in the world is going to happen to our country when the baby boomers end up taking over? And every generation of people is asked the same question about the next generation, you know? (laughs) It's just kind of one of those things that happen. But, and it's really ironically today, and those of you who are, if you please, baby boomers, uh, you realize as well that the only radical boomers that are left are those who are dedicated to Jesus Christ. Kind of interesting, is it not? You see... It's just like, you know, when we see people in need, we're generous. Uh, Because we see ourselves when we were in great need and God was generous to us. And so we, we go from stinginess to generosity. We go from apathy to involvement because of all that God is doing. And the change is just as radical as Charles Dickens Ebenezer Scrooge, when he looked with the same eyes out the same window of the same house on the same street in the same town and yet on Christmas morning, everything was different. There was a new governing principle in his life. And so we have to ask the question, are there any miraculous changes in my life? Are there any miraculous changes in your life? Do people really notice what is going on? The fact that you... You can be courageous, and yet, you know, you're not proud about it. You're, you're humble about it, and you're, you know what sadness is, but, you, you, you're, you know, your default mode is just being joyful in the grace of God. And, uh, and it's really out of that grace that our life flows. I, you know, we know when we've been born again, simply because we come out kicking and screaming and we're alive, But sometimes, you know, the the spirituality and the zeal begins to fade. It's happened to me. It's happened to you. And at times we go through these periods of struggle. And sometimes we neglect uh, some of the disciplines. We don't feel like opening up our Bible and reading a chapter and maybe asking what it's saying and what God is saying to us through it. We, We haven't really fellowshiped with the right people. And somehow, you know, there's a bit of an... Of, of a shrinkage there and it's becoming more and more encased in, in who I am rather than what God happens to be doing in me. And, and what, what I need to do during those particular times is that, is that looking back up to Jesus Christ. And those of you who are thinking about the Lord, who might need the Lord but don't have the Lord all you, you, you need to remember is that, you know, when Christ was born in Bethlehem, remember the angelic host in the, in the heavens in glory, they broke out in music. When he was born, and every time one of us steps forward and say, you know, I need the Lord Jesus Christ, it just sets again heaven ablaze with all kinds of singing. And you know, I mean, the musical talent and the the, the music, and even today was just wonderful music, and it was just through the roof great. And we all sang well because we were looking at the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Final thought: What happened to Nicodemus? You know, uh, did he experience the new birth? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. You know, you can continue to read on, and we don't know for sure. But there is something that's very, very interesting. You know, when we go to John chapter 19, after Jesus was taken off the cross, Nicodemus asked the Roman authorities for permission to receive the body of Christ, and it was given to him. And what Nicodemus did with the Lord at that time is he prepared the body with the finest of linens and 300 pounds of myrrh. In fact, it was, more, it was 100 pounds of myrrh. And that is an extravagantly expensive thing. And I have a feeling that Nicodemus's actions with the Lord confirmed the fact that he was one of the chosen. I look forward to seeing this guy someday, asking him a few questions, you know, getting a little bit more in-depth than what I glean in the Scriptures. Father, thank you for reminding us of why you came, what you're all about, Uh, for the reality, Lord, that uh, you are the changer of lives and uh, goodness knows, so we've experienced partially and uh, we trust that we'll continue to grow and experience more of you as we do. And ultimately, I'll look forward uh, when the diseases of our own bodies, of sin and death, will be done And we can enter into your presence uh, fully alive in God and spend the rest of our time uh, worshiping you and enjoying the fellowship of the grace that you've shown each of us in such marvelous ways, not only in coming to you, but it just continues to flow in the way that uh, we love people and the way that uh, people love us, the community that we enjoy, the realization that it takes the sting out of the sorrows of this life because we know you. And I pray, Father, for the young and the old alike um, that we would never come to a place where we would stall and say, that's enough. Uh, Lord, we're on that road, marching toward you, uh, wanting to be as much as we can possibly be here on earth, but looking forward to being totally rid of this body of sin and death. And in that glorified state, enjoy the company with one another, but most of all, the pleasures of just honoring and loving and glorifying you for all of eternity.